No Time to Die. James Bond. We both eradicate people. As seen through the eyes of three visionary filmmakers. I just want to be a little tidier. I met your new double O. She's a disarming young woman. Bong Joon-ho. I'm here in Seoul, Sunday morning, South Korea. And I grow, I grow up in South Korea. That, and when I was in elementary school, in, it was in 1970s, we little kids, the boys always talking about Bond car or the, uh, we take the engine and we control the world. When is the time? Soon. Denis Villeneuve. Before. They're not human. They're... Yeah, I, I, I share totally your uh, enthusiasm regarding what Daniel brought to the character. I mean, it's like it was a true re revitalization. I mean, like a, a rebirth. It, it, it was, uh, I remember myself like I was in awe when I saw Casino Royale. Uh, uh. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. Dad, what if I'm not the future? And Guillermo del Toro. I loved this movie and I loved it in a way that I have uh, grown to love. The story of uh, the Daniel Craig's Bond, but also in the way that the stakes, uh, normally the stakes of drama, are sort of a counterweight to great action sequences, but for the last few movies, an arc has been created, and I, I really thought it would be impossible for me to tear up and choke, uh, choke up at the end of a Bond movie. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the James Bond Complex Podcast, the show where we discuss, rejoice, and analyze with a finely toothed comb the James Bond phenomenon from Fleming, in all its shapes and forms, I should add, from Fleming to films and everything in between. Ooh. 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 I'm one of your co-hosts, co Jason Kim, who's joining I'm 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 also joining this. I'm also joining this recording. My name is Edgar. Uh, good morning to you, Jason. Good morning, Edgar, and and happy weekend or happy super. At the time of this recording, it's happy Super Bowl weekend. But happy we'll see who the winner. We'll see. We will see who the winner is. By the time this, we're recording a few days before the Super Bowl, and this is going up just a few days after the Super Bowl. So it's a bit of a quick turnaround. But we have a sort of a an easygoing, relaxing conversation. Uh, what, what, what do you and I like a lot in life, Jason? We like films. Uh, outside of James Bond and 
NFL, we love cinema a lot, and we we like a lot of the uh, certain directors. Mm. We like very uh, what's that? Uh, auteurs. Auteur, auteur. We like very much auteur directors from global globally around the world. Exactly, exactly. Nothing gets me off more than just going to see a Christopher Nolan film on on opening night on on IMAX. Get, Give me that incomprehensible dialogue in the in the sound mixing. I, I love it. I can't get enough. I don't want to hear what they say. I don't want to know what they have to say. But yes, you are absolutely right. We do like our auteurs. We we have a one-on-one chat message thingy on Facebook that where we talk a lot about film. Mm-hmm. Not that Matt and Emery don't like film. They very much like film. But you and I are a little bit more... Um, well, research on film for sure. Or, well, I was going to say self-wankery about film, but you said it in a much nicer way. Um, recently, on the uh, both on the official 007 YouTube channel, and I believe on the 007.com website, but also on Vimeo, there was this trilogy of interviews with Kerry Fukunaga, Barbara, Daniel Craig features in one, Rami Malek features in one. But it's not and just... Alina's- Lena Sengren. Lena Sengren, you're right. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, But film journalists are not conducting these interviews. Uh, A little bit to our surprise, delightful surprise, filmmakers are conducting these journalists. So three different interviews conducted Mm -hmm. by three different filmmakers. Who were those filmmakers, Jason? Uh, We have Guillermo del Toro from Mexico, Denis Villeneuve, who's yours truly uh, from Montreal yourself. So you'll be the Denis Villeneuve representative today. Yeah, right, right. That's, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Okay. And then, uh, and a director from my home country, Bong Joon-ho, who, who many Western audiences will know as a director of Parasite. Right, the Oscar yeah. win, 2019 Oscar winner Parasite. Yeah, best picture, not, not just foreign. I think it was best picture, wasn't it? It was best, they swept it. So it was best picture, best director, best foreign and best, screenplay or best adapted screenplay oh it's adapted i don't know what what, what is adapted from or i think it was original screenplay to be honest screenplay whatever the the the, the respective screenplay category they wanted (laughs) Mm -hmm. this was this was your idea you 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 came to me with this with this idea um i I needed to be sold on it a little bit but having watched or listened more importantly to these interviews. I, I agree there are some things we can talk about. Um, do, do we want to maybe just lay the table a little bit about, well, who are these directors? We don't, we don't need to talk for an hour here, but who oh, yeah. are these directors? Why do we like them? Um, you know, you're, you're oh. a Bong Joon-ho. I mean, I'm a Bong Joon-ho guy myself, but you know, you just said he's from your home country. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about Bong Joon-ho? Oh, so yes. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is obviously, I mean, these all three directors are the most talented directors in the world today at this moment that we're recording and two of the Denis Villeneuve and Bong Joon-ho are specific specifically are two of my favorite directors at the moment right now I'm not trying to badmouth gear about the tour by any means um, but Bong Joon-ho is a director that I grew up with as a child like you know living in America living in Korea uh, you know and I watched his career start from the bottom and flourish to the international stardom that it is today, where he he went from making like small, two small, very indie Korean movies that are getting more acclaim today. And now he's 
not only has he just won Oscars, but he is now like a official jury member at Khan. So, uh, so to, and in that regards, uh, the reason why I wanted to do this interview is because in that regards, I think Bong Joon-ho's career, like in terms of years and the way Daniel Craig's uh, career has flourished during the same, similar time period are very, uh, there's a good analogy or very uh, neck and they're very neck and neck in time. Because I watched both. Go ahead. So I watched both Bong Joon-ho and Daniel Craig's career about the same time because, you know, they were both like starting out at the same time and they both flourished exactly at 2006. Or 2006 was when Bong Joon-ho's third movie overall, but it was his third movie overall called Host. It's like Mm -hmm. about a... a giant sea creature that attacks Korea, and and at the time it had a brilliant CGI because Korea never really invented, really never tested the waters with CGI, so it was brilliant. And it was the first movie of his that was screened outside of Korea. And then 2006, as we all know, is when Daniel Craig reinvented James Bond in Casino Royale. That's right. So yeah, it's it's an interesting point. The the, the idea that both. Uh... Bong Joon-ho and, and Daniel Craig, or Daniel Craig as Bond, but to be fair, Bond is sort of what, uh, I don't want to say what made Daniel Craig. He was doing good work before mm-hmm. that, but, you know, everybody knew Daniel Craig mm-hmm. after Casino Royale. Uh, yeah, their trajectory is, is, is quite uh, similar. In fact, you know, Parasite is a 2019 film, and if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I mean, No Time to Die would have come out like four or five months later. You know, it's very... Mm-hmm. Quite interesting. I haven't seen all of his works. And I, I unfortunately have not seen The Host. And and I, I can be a little bit lazy sometimes, even though Okja is on Netflix. I still haven't seen Okja. Um, but I've seen Mother, although it was a while ago. I'm just looking at the filmography. Oh, you actually, you actually seen Mother, Tessa. A few years ago, but I remember liking it quite a bit. Uh, Memories of Murder, Snowpiercer, and, and Parasite are the ones uh, that I saw. Uh, Parasite I saw in theaters because, you know, yeah. by then uh, it was pretty obvious that he was an interesting director and it, and it did come up. I played everywhere. So to me, uh, Memories of Murder is still his best work, in my opinion. It's the second movie overall, but the first that was kind of like released in mainstream cinema in Korea at the time. And it's also based on a true story. So yeah. based on a true story of a Zodiac killer so it's some very similar to david fincher's zodiac but what happened mm-hmm. in korea in the 80s and it has its moments of lightheartedness as well as a serious drama in it and that's what i think the audience was able to captivate captivate to mm-hmm. and uh what made and i think the bigger accomplishment out of bong Juno is not winning parasite but a few months before or after parasite swept the awards the actual Zodiac killer got identified oh, like 40, true. like 37 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I do, I do vaguely remember that now that, now that you mention it, um, but yeah, he, he is quite an interesting director. <coughs> I, I remember sitting in the theater for, um, for Parasite since the most recent one. And I, I, I remember quite distinctly having the feeling for about the first hour of, well, yeah, no, this is this is good. I, I think I like other Bong Joon-ho films more mm. than this, but, but this is good. 
And then, you know, when, when the SHIT hits the fan and, and things get a little bit more down and dirty um, in that movie, which itself has such the, like the strangest, like only Bong Joon-ho would come up with that sort of a premise. Um, but when the shit hits the fan, it, it really gets going. And yeah, I remember walking halfway through, I was like, yeah, this is fine. And I remember walking out going, oh, that was actually like really, really good. I, I get it now. I know I understand why people really like this movie. A funny, funny story is, like I said, Memories of Murder is one of the, his first, his second movie overall, but first, you know, like that's, you know, was kind of released on a wider scale. The guy in the basement in Parasite was also in Memories of Murder, and in Memories of Murder, he was also a guy who was kind of stuck in the basement. He was more so tortured in a basement, <laughs> let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, the moment we find out that there's someone in the basement, it's 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 uh, I, going back to past like memories of murder. It's been a little bit too, uh, you know, for a movie that has the word memories in it. It's been a little bit too long. I, I, the day, the details are a little bit hazy about about uh, murder for me. But but yeah, the moment the, the moment in Parasite where you realize, oh, no, there's another level to this thing. Kind of kind of literally there's another level to this thing. It's like, whoa, what direction is this movie going in? But that's sort of what he, he does. You know, he, he has fun like. Another tidbit was uh, when Daniel Craig and Katarina Monroe and Martin Campbell came to Korea in December 2006 to uh, promote Casino Royale. And I think it was like the first time in a very long time, maybe the 70s or 80s, that Eon actually came to Korea to promote the movies. I'm, I'm going to guess mm-hmm. the 80s because they never came for the Pierce Brosnan movies, let alone Die Another Day. <laughs> But it, yeah, well, that would have been a little bit weird, maybe. But yeah. uh, but uh, at the time, Daniel Craig was still a rising star, at least in the mainstream audience. And this was the moment in the interview. Daniel Craig said, "My favorite Korean movies are Old Boy, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, and what is it? And Memories of Murder." And the entire Korean audience were just shocked and applauded because they were like, "Like he because like because Daniel Craig came from a small indie." film background like the fact that he is so he was more familiar with korean cinema or korean cinema that wasn't big at the time i mean it's, korean cinema is more mainstream now than it was in 2003 or 2006 and that's the moment when the korean audience just applauded and kind of like rave you know happened following his career since i mean he's not on tom go ahead go no no please finish your thought so i mean He's not a Tom Cruise level stardom because, you know, Tom Cruise has had a career of 40 years and he built a fandom and career for 40 years. But that was a huge boost for both Daniel Craig and Bond at the time and a huge redemption from that die another day. Should we stick with this interview for a few minutes? Um... Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, since we're already on the topic of Bong joon we'll stick here. Uh, I thought, you know, just obviously, unlike most people or most Bond fans, I didn't need subtitles the entire time because i could understand both languages but oh good for you uh, jason i'm so happy for you everybody's or, or, so happy for you or i or i didn't need a translator at the time and sharon Choi is the translator that travels with the pong juno and was at the oscars and caught well at Khan, he had a, he needed a french he needed a translator who could do french and korean instead of french and english but uh, she, she sounded very north american where's she from or where's she she's based? from oh she's from la Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, she sounded quite very when she was translating Jung Ho's words, it's so like she sounded like she was, you know, very American. And then like we said, like the very first question like that Daniel uh, Bong Juno asked was like, How was your 15 years as James Bond? And and like I, like we already discussed earlier, like the 15 years were a 
both a good trajectory timeline for both their careers. And as Daniel Craig said, he grew up. And mm-hmm. uh, or Bong mentioned uh, his 15 year tenure is longer than how longer than how long the boy grew up in boyhood. Because I still have yeah. never seen that movie. That's pretty good. Cool. And uh, to put in scale how long 15 years was like. It doesn't, I mean, I still remember 2005 pretty well because I was 17 at the time. So, you know, like, I, you know, I have good memories when I was 17, but to put in perspective how long 15 years is, in, when Daniel Craig got casted, my sister graduated elementary school, so fifth grade. <laughs> and in 2021, she, so 15 years is Bond or 16 years if you count from the cast, the day he got casted to you No know, Time Die premiere, so 16 years. Or to, so 2005, my sister graduated elementary school in fifth grade. 2021, my sister graduated dental school and she's a practicing dentist. That's how long 15 years, that's how long Daniel Craig's career is, if you think about it. Yes, uh, some, some people would bemoan that, some people to cheer it. Uh, I guess it's, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. It's like, that's a very nice run. Would have been nice if we had maybe an extra film or two in those mm-hmm. in those fifteen to sixteen years, but you know we got we got the we will deal with the run that we got, and it was a good one. Uh, but yeah, it's it's quite something. Fifteen years to, to play that role again. I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's twenty five percent of the franchise history, a quarter of the French of the sixty year history. At times, there there are a lot of years between entries, which is sort of what pads it. But yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, yes, it, it was quite a long run and, and the, the world has changed quite a lot in those 15 years. Filmmaking has, has changed. I mean, you know, you talked about The Host, uh, which was the first South Korean film mm-hmm. to, to, to utilize, uh, at least on a CGI. massive scale, CGI. Um, and CGI itself, you know, where we're, we're making movies, it's, I, I don't have Disney Plus, but it's like everybody's talking about it. Isn't isn't like a young Luke Skywalker back in Star Wars? That, like CGI could do anything, you know. Or if you days. want, to, or if you want to put it in football terms, uh, Terrell Owens was still a starting line, starting member of the Philadelphia Eagles, the team that absolutely uh, loathes him for many many reasons, you know. Yeah, yeah, that that was a marriage that did not end very well. But yeah, it's it's you know filmmaking has changed has changed quite a bit uh, in the in the intervening years, and we've you know we've seen it in the James Bond franchise. You know, it, it itself there was an attempt to bring back an old villain in Spectre, uh, an old villain in in Blofeld, only to kill him off kind of off screen in the next movie but details details um and i mean know. speaking speaking of specter uh because like uh you know when we you and i did our review of no time die i related a lot of i always said casino royale you know brought had the cues or foreshadowed everything and a lot of things in no time die but bong joon brings up a lot of things that you know it was more obvious but i just never thought about it like such as uh you know DB10 chase in Rome when he's phoning Money Penny. Money tells him, mm. you know, it's you know, it's called life, James. You should try it sometime. And at the end of Spectre, you know, he decides to quote unquote try it, but no time dies the first movie where, as Bong Juno says, is he is truly quote unquote living a life or domesticated or trying to attempt a domesticated life because uh, first he's retired and then he shuts off again, just as he did with that after Vesper's death and then when he reaches to Norway and 
And once he completes the mission, or I think well, I think Barbara said when he Bond reaches Madeline's house in Norway, he himself is thinking, this is the life that I could live to, you know, like, and that's what he was picturing in, in him. That's what was going through Bond's mindset when he was meeting Matt, talking with Madeline for the first time in five years, not counting the prison scene. Yeah, it was interesting. Of, of the, and we'll, we'll get to the other two uh, interviews shortly. But of, of the three, uh, the, the Bong interview was the one, he, he seemed to be the director that was the most fascinated with this idea of like, wow, this spy that I got, he says, oh, when I was growing up in Korea, you know, we kept talking, you know, debating who's the best Bond and the action scenes and the cars. And now I'm sitting in the theater watching this movie and like James Bond is slicing an apple for his maybe perhaps daughter later confirmed Yes. Uh, the tactical knife, no less. <laughs> of the three directors that, that we saw in this trilogy, he's the one that seems to be the most like uh, obsessed with this <laughs> with this idea of like, why is James Bond? I mean, he likes it. He, he's, he's showering praise on the film, but it's almost like, hey, then what's going on here? What's this James Bond movie where he's a, where he, where he's a family man? Which is interesting because, you know, Bong Joon-ho, I'll be at this point in time, it was three years ago, but uh, Bong Joon-ho, you know, just made a movie that's a lot about family and trying to family, keep the yeah. family unit together and and the survival of the family uh, albeit under wildly different circumstances but, <laughs> of course uh, it's not another yeah but parasite is not like no time to die and vice versa but still you know there's some through lines there so i guess there was a logic to to bong jung ho uh, he asked other questions but but he, a lot of his questions were about that family dynamic and 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 mm. But but it was always in a glowing manner. He didn't. He you know he he doesn't think Bond was was neutered or anything like that. Just, no, it's, just, no. it's different. It's 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 different. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of the things that he said or like the way he addressed the questions were very Korean. In that, uh, a lot of Koreans, or I'm sure this applies to most casual Bond audiences, or as Roland Hume comes calls them muggles. Most people distinct, at least Koreans, distinguish Bond films by. The gadgets, cars, and some car gadgets, cars, the villains, and sometimes the Bond girls. Because like, so Spy Who Loved Me is a much more recognizable Bond movie than say, A View to No, not No View to a Kill is recognizable than say, uh, For Your Eyes Only. I mean, oh, For Your Eyes Only, okay. Yeah, I mean, even though I like both films a lot, but you know, if you say Spy, if you say Jaws, Lotus. Esprit Submarine. Mm -hmm. That's people like, oh, Spy Who Loved Me. But mm -hmm. for your eyes on the like, we'll say Julian Glover, and people will be like, oh, who's that? Like, you know, Game of Game Thrones. Of Thrones at, <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones. In the, yeah, I mean, don't get me. I mean, my dad all my dad was a huge fan of Octopussy at the time, and you nice. know, like, granted, the Octopussy name doesn't the slang doesn't translate at all in Korean at all. So I guess it was a safe movie for me to watch as a ten year old, but. Let me ask you this. What's the title of that film in, in Korea? Uh, so there are a lot of times when Korean movies, they don't translate the movie titles. If there's no translation, they just say octopus. They just say, they just spell it out phonetically in Korean octopusy. And so <laughs> that's so they're like, oh, it's just some English word. That's all. Well, to be fair, I don't think it was only in Korea where when they announced that title, I think even native English speakers were like, what the heck is an octopusy? What, what sort of rated R movie is this going to be? I don't think anybody knew what that was, unless you read the Fleming short story. But even in the Fleming, it kind of makes sense. It's Because it's, in the Fleming short story, it, it is the octopus. And in the movie, it's the little 
Well, it's also a tattoo and it's, and it's yeah. the character itself. So I, yeah, they sort of translated it. I, I guess they translated it the best they could from the short story to the film. Um, I mean, he and Bong, like later on, like just as he goes on with the interview, uh, he reiterates kind of like a lot of feelings that a lot of people felt about Daniel Craig's Bond, whether it was positive or negative. Like when you think of James Bond, you think of a Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan swab in a tuxedo, but mm. the first moment, oh, which we do see Daniel in like, because I think the Skyfall tuxedo entrance and the Spectre mm. tuxedo, Spectre ivory tuxedo, I think those are some of the best tuxedos in, in the entire franchise overall, not just amongst Daniel Craig, but like, as Bong says, mm. the first moment we see Daniel, he's not in that, but he's like crushing through walls. He's sweating, he's bloody, and he's doing parkour. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Daniel Craig describes uh, Sebastian Foucault as uh, silk and silk. Oil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he true. He is kind of like oil, just slithering yeah. all over the place. Uh, yeah, Sebastian Fuca was like silk and oil. Daniel was a tank because he's like crushing through walls. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I wasn't quite aware about how they prepared that moment, uh, but it seems as though they sort of. Um, how did How did Daniel Craig put it? They did something to the wall on the other side to make it a little bit easier to punch through or to punch through to run. So through. like the Ga- Gary Palp drew an X on the wall and then he like took the layers out, took mm-hmm. the drywall out of the wall so that, right. so he could just run through it. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, Bong Joon-ho is, was also fairly interested in, in uh, the Cuba sequence and in um, Nomi also, he gets into a little bit oh, of yeah. Nomi action in the interview. They're quite proud in how they depicted uh Cuba and 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 know me in in the film as I I, I guess as the, as they should be. What what were your thoughts on on that part of the interview? Oh, so uh, actually, because I watched No Time to Die with my parents and my sister with Korean subtitles through oh, iTunes. Tell me about that. Talk to me. So, in, during Christmas break, and uh, I thought Bong Joon Ho's comments were almost like word to word on my dad's perspective on my, how my dad felt about both the two aspects, like. He all, him and my sister <clears throat> wanted Paloma to reappear again, or like they really enjoy the Cuba scene a lot because mm. they're like, oh, it's classic Bond, but it's very grounded. That's what they said. And then uh, my dad and my sister, they both, or my dad specifically, really loved the Nomi entrance because uh, I mean, I always loved it because uh, I thought it was a very good modernization of Live and Let Die for the modern, for the 21st century, but with uh, Rosie Carver. but but a little bit Nomi, more competent than that. <laughs> yeah, a lot more competent. I personally like the Nomi character. I thought she was, I thought Lashana Lynch was very well grounded. And, you know, she had, you know, she didn't have much scenes. She carried a lot of weight. And the scene and the, the moment when she said, oh, by the way, I'm not just any double O, I'm double O seven. And my, and when that line came up, my dad's like, oh, so this is why a bunch of like moronic, uh, moronic, uh, paparazzis and media are just screaming heads about like a black woman's going to play James Bond next. Cause like, and I think, you know, I know some people, did, some of the Bond fans didn't like it, but uh, I think that scene was really necessary. Cause like, like I said, the muggles didn't understand that you could be James Bond, but not 007 or vice versa. And, mm. and the media manipulated that to like create a frenzy, which never ended up being anything or which ended up being a brilliant part of the movie or a very unique part of the movie. Well, you know, there's, there's, uh, 
it's it's funny on the weekend of this we're doing this on a friday and there's a, a an oft delayed movie opening this weekend death on the nile and that that film's marketing has has been a little bit troubled for reasons we don't have to get into one of the actors has been in some hot water but other than maybe something like that there, there's rarely something as bad bad uh, what's it called uh, there's no such thing as bad publicity I think that's yeah. the, the expression. So I go, oh oh, Ellie- black woman is playing James Bond. Oh, dude, the movie made almost $800 million. Go yeah. ahead. Complain that it's a black yeah. <laughs> Or what? It, I mean, we'll take it from our very own bundle and stuff. There's no news, like bad news. Yeah, no news <laughs> Absolutely. Well played there, Jason. No, it's, it's, I, I agree. I, I've always liked the character of, of no male. Clearly Bong Joon-ho seems to be quite interested in the character as well. Um, there was a lot of hoopla about that character. Not, not, not all of it always positive um, for reasons uh, that we've, I'm sure we've already discussed in previous episodes. Um, is she in the movie as much as I would have liked? No, but it's a two hour and 43 minute long movie. It does, does not need to be any longer than it already is. Um, you know, Daniel Craig's Bond is dead, so it's not like we're gonna see that character again, but I will admit I will admit that there's a part of me that's like, you know, maybe not one offshoot or uh, um, spinoff. That's the word I'm looking for. You know, one spinoff of the Nomi 007. I wouldn't, uh, I, w- I wouldn't mind. There was, there's something there. There's something oh, yeah. there, even though we don't get that much of it in No Time to Die. But I think there's enough there. And then uh, uh, No Time, what is it? Uh, so to tie this all back to Bong Joon-ho, uh, so... Lashana Lynch was one of was my favorite character in the Captain Mar- first Captain Marvel movie, and then mm-hmm. the second Captain Marvel movie shooting now. And I'm not exactly sure if she's gonna appear or not. I mean, I hope she does because like she was brutal. I loved her in Captain Marvel, and and you remember in Paris, like the guy who gives the boy the rock, vaguely, yeah. Like at the beginning, like you know, yeah. the rock at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So he's a he's a he's a he's become a very popular actor now. His name is Pax Hojun, and he is gonna be the next Captain Marvel movie. So he'll be the second Korean actor to be in a Marvel film, and or third, I guess, if you count uh, uh, what is it, Daniel Day? No, 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 it was Spider Man, but he was what's that? What's the one with the robots? One with the robots, Age of Ultron. Yeah, Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron was set in Korea, but uh, so that actor who Bong casted in Parasite will be in the next Captain Marvel movie, and there's a good chance that he will be teaming up with Lashana Lynch. I, I honestly, I, I sort of mostly appreciated his fascination with the the, the domesticate. Again, I, I don't mean it in the pejorative sense, but the domestication. <laughs> <laughs> of of James Bond, which is very inhibitual. So I, I sort of appreciated that that appears to be what struck mm-hmm. Bong Joon-ho. Uh, oh, I mean, I've been struck by that too. My, when Matilda showed up, we're like, what? And my sister too. My sister was like, wait, this isn't a Bond movie. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a good line. Wait, this isn't a Bond movie is the perfect way to describe Daniel Craig's career. Like I remember when my, I showed my sister Casino Royale like when she was 13, uh, 12 or 13, Casino Royale for the first time, uh, the scene when Bond kills the Stephen Obano's character and then and then he meets Vesper in the shower scene. Like, you know, it was a very vulnerable, emotional scene. And my sister was just so shocked that that was in a Bond movie, you know, because like mm. she likes romance or chick flicks, you know, at, the, at, the, at that age and still now. And she was so shocked and moved 
by that scene. She's like, wow, this isn't a Bond movie. And like, mm-hmm. and Casino Royale is one of her favorite Bond movies or favorite movie, period. And mm-hmm. when Matilda showed up, she was like, wow, this is, she was like, this isn't a Bond movie, too. And I think that's what made Daniel Craig's era so great is that there are a lot of things that he was able to do, but I don't think they'll ever, the franchise will ever touch them again because like, then it'll just kind of feel like, then that'll be the, be the cliche itself. And one quick note was, uh, you know, like how it's supposed to be a five-year gap between no time that inspector, you know, theoretically, uh, my sister's only, only complaint was Matilda is not five. She's like six or seven. Cause uh, she said, uh, cause my sister's a pediatric dentist. And she said that uh, the Matilda actress, she lost, her two incisors and those don't come out to your sticks. So she was like, she's just the actor's definitely six or seven, not five. Damn it. They almost fooled the audience. They almost fooled the audience, but you can't fool a dentist. You can't fool the yeah. dentist. She, she's seriously looking out for the, I guess she sees it like five days a week, eight hours a day. She's oh like, yeah. Hey, that doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but, she, but she, but she, but she adored uh, the actress, Laura. What was her name? Laura. I thought it was Leia. Isn't there a... No, or, or a... Ma- I can't Lisa, Lisa, Lisa Dora. Lisa Dora. Lisa That's Dora, yeah. Dora. No, very good actress. It's true. We, do, we, we don't talk about that actress very much. Well, but she is quite good. She is quite good. We'll get there for Villeneuve as, as we're going to transition into Villeneuve yeah. next. But the one thing I want to end with Daniel Craig and Bong Joon-ho was, as I was watching the interview with Bong Joon-ho, I was like, I have that same exact Dark Navy Henley that Daniel Craig's wearing in the interview. Maybe not the same brand, but I have one that looks just like that. I was like, yes. Of course you do, Jason. (laughs) Myself and everyone in the audience expects no less of you, Jason. (laughs) So that that about wraps up the Bong Joon-ho interview. Uh, We'll segue. I believe the second one they released was Villeneuve. Now, for whatever reason, it's on a different platform. It's on Vimeo and not YouTube. I'm I'm, I'm not sure what the deal with that is. Um, Denis Villeneuve, homeboy. Uh, he's been around for quite a long time. He's been around since the mid to late aughts. He started with some low budget um, French language uh, Canadian films. He did a film. Uh, I actually have not seen his very first, first movie, Maelstrom. Uh, I started watching when he made a movie called Polytechnic, which is a dramatization yep. of, uh, I mean, I don't need to get into the details, but a very, very uh, horrific event at a. At, Oddly, and a university I'm going to uh, these days, uh, back in 1989, I think it was, there was a school shooting. Interesting. Oh, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I, don't, I know what that is, yeah. Interesting uh, fact, uh, Denis Villeneuve shot that movie twice with the same actors. You can watch it in French and you can watch it in English. It's quite... Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's not a long movie, uh, but, but yeah, he shot it twice on the Blu-ray, which I sold donkeys years ago but on the blu-ray there's an english language track and there's a french language track and it's the same there's no dubbing it's the same actors um, and before at uh while we're at it uh mind you the odd for the audiences uh villeneuve was actually the the original original no time die director because uh i remember in 2017 a month after you and i met for the first time became friends and have our friendship today I was blown away by Blade Runner 2049. And, mm. and then the next day I saw Blade Runner, there was a Guardian a, a report by the Guardian, the Guardian, not like some Daily Mail mm-hmm. bullshit. It was like, that said, Daniel Craig and Eon are looking at Denis Villeneuve and Denis Villeneuve says, I would love to do a Bond movie with De- Daniel Craig, but I'm focusing on Dune. <laughs> and now, and both those movies came out this year. 
And this yes. is all before this is all before Danny Boyle fiasco, by the way. That's true. De- Denis Villeneuve was indeed one of the early names uh, mentioned. I, I, he he is on <clears throat> record as actually having sat down with Eon. Yeah. Like they talked about this. This yeah. isn't like oh, I'd like to. We'll see. This I believe they had conversations. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so they were interested in, in, in Denis Villeneuve, which I guess is, I mean, I'm thinking about Denis Villeneuve's filmography. Uh, As you got to remember in 2017, uh, he was coming hot off the heels because like prisoners for uh, um, like Bong joon like the movie that made him more mainstream or wide, wider audiences was prisoners in 2013 mm-hmm. with Hugh Jackman filmed in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Or in my friend's neighborhood, by the way, but uh, but the uh, romantic hotspot. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the in twenty in twenty seventeen, Denis Villeneuve was coming hot off the heels of both Sicario, which one of my favorite movies, and mm-hmm. and film, and the DP was none other than Roger Deakins mm-hmm. from Fle- No, it's Sir Roger Deakins. Now, yeah, excuse me, because he, right. he just got knighted. Get it straight. He was coming at the hot off the heels of Sicario twenty fifteen. Arrival 2016 and Blade Runner 2049 and 2017. So he had like three just hot, like mm-hmm. off the heels movie. And so like he was obviously one of the hottest directors at the time. And so I mm-hmm. think that's that that definitely validates him saying that he actually sat down with Eon and Daniel to, you know, would you do Daniel's final film? And I guess, you know, mm. history is history. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, never, never say never. You know, there's a lot of time. We have all the time in the world. Hey, oh, you know, there, there's uh, who knows what will happen for Bond uh, 26. I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, I'm still voting for Edgar Wright. But, you know, if it's done even that, so be it. Uh, but I, I'm th- I keep thinking about Villeneuve's filmography and it's a very particular filmography. His mo- it's not that his movies are emotionless. They do have emotional arcs, but there is something about um, his storytelling style, which which I think can leave some people cold. And I thought it was interesting that my oh, that's, takeaway- Oh, that's, 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 that's a perfect description. That's how I felt after Dune. Uh, my takeaway, I think you're, you're, you, 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 you were saying we're gonna segue to Villeneuve for the, for the child actor talk and we can, but funnily enough, my takeaway, and I wasn't surprised, my takeaway of the Villeneuve interview was it was a lot of technical questions, the yes. storyboarding, the camera setups, and I feel like that's exactly what Denis Villeneuve would would uh, would ask. Denis Villeneuve is not going to ask, you know, tell me about the emotional ending. Denis Villeneuve is going to be like, "What was the storyboarding like? How many cameras did you use?" Da, 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 da. Which is great because you know we're film buffs here and we like the yeah. filmmaking process. But I, I, my point is, I wasn't the least bit surprised that the Villeneuve interview was oh, on okay. the technical side. I mean, I like the way you said it, and it really wasn't. My biggest takeaway from the Denis Villeneuve interview was like. The first thing Volnov says to Kerry Fukunaga's, you have all my respect in the world, the loudest uh, uh, word, the loudest voice. And he, I think the thing is, Vilnov, what I really liked about Vilnov is uh, most Bond fans are crying for the days when we had two year gaps. Or, and, and Vilnov's, this interview really shows how like infeasible that is because he says uh, directing a Bond movie is a, not just the emotion directing, but or acting directly, but it's also a logistical and technical monster challenge. And I think Bond Villeneuve really truly understood 
how to make a Bond film on a technical scale. And what I, you know, I always emphasize, you know, like filming takes somewhere between seven to 10 months and post-production is like four months after that. And so like, I always, you know, give the math breakdown on why two years is infeasible, but like film not really emphasizes like, you know, like the difficulty and the challenge of making a film. And it, it, it makes sense because, you know, their movie, at least here in North America, their two movies came out one or two weeks apart. Um, short, in, in rapid succession, let's put it that way. I believe they both came out in October. And, mm-hmm. and they're both large scale films. They're both scales. They're both films that had, funny enough, both films that had been delayed a, a little bit due to COVID. Both epics, both, you know, big sets, big special effects. Uh, big casts, big music by Hans Zimmer in both cases. Uh, That's uh, funny how that turned out. Uh, So it it felt like it it would make sense, I guess, that those two filmmakers... So this is a Fukunaga Villeneuve interview. Mm -hmm. It's a one-on-one interview. I guess it would make sense that this is the most um, technically uh, influenced uh, interview because they literally just came out of a shoot and a post-production, a pre production a shoot and a post-production and a release of these technical i haven't seen doom but i mean i've seen the trailer i, I have an idea of what it's about i've read the book you know mm-hmm. they're they're technical marvels you know they're uh, and yes they must be monsters to, <laughs> to coordinate yeah. i don't want to make a james bond movie or a Dune movie no thanks i'll make my little indie film nah. i mean uh, like a joke with joe darling that eon needs stuntmen up I showed him videos of my 32 inch box jumps. Um, they know mm. they know where to find me, or or yeah. I'll be a spe- or I'll be Chris Corbalt's special effects assistant driving tanks and Camaros or any car chases. Put you in a dinner jacket. You can be Bond's body double, stunt stunt person, stunt double. What do you call those yeah. things? Stunt um. double. And uh, one of the action scenes. I mean, while we're still in action, like Denis Villeneuve was really fascinated by the action scenes, and I, this was a line that I was really kind of intrigued by is uh they weren't trying to carry fukunaga said in like more or less words that uh they weren't trying to make the action more like more bigger than ever before but they're but because the story is grounded and daniel's bond in no time dies an older bond than say in casino royale or any of the previous bonds in the past uh i mean granted daniel's younger than roger in half his movies but in the time that that is, but uh, he said uh, they wanted to make the action suitable and less exhausting for Daniel because of his older age and mm-hmm. and Villeneuve comments, oh, realism brings danger. And I'm just thinking, and then he, they were talking about the stairway fight, I, you know, after Daniel does his final gun barrel shot and he walks the stairs and the grenades are throwing and mm-hmm. he's jumped, he's escaping fire, shooting guards mm. left and right and, mm. and fighting cyclops or primo down the stairs or grappling him and and it was a and they're commenting that uh just like just the non-stop shoot and like the fact that daniel wasn't just a superman but he was quote-unquote struggling as he was going up the stairs and struggling mm-hmm. as he was fighting you know like mm-hmm. you know the scene when the grenade the flashbang or the grenade explodes and like there's like no sound mm-hmm. and it's just like his emotion like and he and i, I really love the com- the breakdown of that scene and and what this comment that made me really happy was uh carrie fukunaga said he and he took 
he used the old boy hallway fight scene as an inspiration for the Daniel's final stairway case fight. <laughs> Bringing it back to Korean cinema. Uh, but no, but, and then to tie it all back up is he, Kerry Fukunaga also hired that DP of old boy Chong Jong-hoon to be his DP for it part one. But then Kerry Fukunaga pulled the Danny Boyle before Danny mm. Boyle. <laughs> yeah, I know he's the OG Danny Boyle, but uh, it, it is interesting at the end of that uh, stairwell fight, uh, you know, really showed him your new watch, really blew his mind. He, he's he's haggard, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's struggling to walk up. Then this is before he gets shot, you know, he's struggling to walk up those those final steps, which uh, and, and didn't even know if I mean, you're quoting him, you know, the realism brings danger. There is there is something to that, there is something to perhaps unlike some of the latter Roger Moore movies uh, where in the filmmaking process, in the storytelling process, you can't, you don't, you, you, you're not going to make a, a Bond movie where James Bond is too old to do anything uh, physically. This, this uh, isn't a, this isn't lethal weapon when um, uh, Danny Glover says we're too, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> you know what? Kind of, kind of. It is a bit of a I'm too old for this shit Bond movie. It kind yeah. of is. It's because you, you, Daniel Craig, the actor, is in shape. James Bond, despite not being on a mission for five years and drinking and eating in Jamaica for five years, he's still in shape, but whatever. It's movie magic. You know, yeah. so, so, so the character is still in shape. Uh, but he hasn't been on a mission. He hasn't been punched in the face for a few years. He hasn't been yeah. shot at for a few years. So yeah, he, he's pretty haggard at the end of these action yeah. scenes. Um, it, it does make sense. There is a says Vinev would say that you know the realism does lend itself to some tension and some 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 danger. Is that the interview where where Fukunaga elaborates a little bit on the sound design in Matara when the tomb? blows up or am i getting mixed yeah up yeah in my yeah interviews? yeah that this is this is it because like uh they talk about like how fukunaga really wanted to film a, a movie a sound movie where there is no sound and just like mm-hmm. or the, there's no die no there's no dialogue off but it's just all sound that's what and that's why they Villeneuve and fukunaga heavily emphasize like visual language is very unique and key and has to be a connective tissue between the first unit, you know, the actor shooting versus the second mm. unit shooting the action scenes. You know, even Beasts of No Nation, there is sort of a cohesiveness to how that movie flows. And when it's a down period, when it's, it's not, it's not, Beasts of No Nation is, is not an action film, but there are moments oh, no. of tension. There, there are moments of action in them. Uh, although the action is portrayed as, as much more horrifying than it ever would be in, in a Bond movie. Oh, God, uh, yeah. There is a cohesiveness to it, and you know, as is the case again, with the exception being Dune, because I haven't seen it yet. But if I'm thinking of Blade Runner, uh, if I'm thinking about Sicario, which has some action, the end, the climax is a pretty big action set piece. Uh, you know, there there is a lot of cohesion to that. That they, they do strike me as directors that um, they strike me as directors that unify their creative team very well from the script oh, that- to the cinematography to the set to the costume to the editing to the sound design there's there's a cohesion to their work which makes oh, sense yeah, yeah. I find. The, the, that's what the, they emphasized a lot in this interview is like because uh, they obviously emphasize in the technical respect the editing like how Villeneuve says like the editing was very seamless it seemed 
look very seamless and how like the emotion. And I read an interview with, with Tom, not Fukunaga, but with Tom Cross and Elliot Graham, the editors of No Time to Die. And they've done fantastic editing in, in many, many other films. But uh, they hmm. said they, they literally timed like each scene and the previews. Uh, or I think to start it off, uh, Fukunaga said the one thing that he was always jealous about Pixar is like whenever Pixar finishes like the three scenes, 10 scenes they film a day, uh, they preview them and then time, you know, like, you know, use a stopwatch to time it to see how the emotions or the scenes hit the punch. And then, and that's, and this was the first bomb movie that he was able to, first movie he was able to do it. And one of the first bomb movies to do it was like, they were timing mm-hmm. all the motions very well, like such as, uh, when the Aston Martin gets knocked over by the Range Rover, like as Madeline is like, you know, like screaming for her life and they didn't want to take it too long, but, you know, time it just right where Bond is stoic. And then he says, mm-hmm. fine, I'll, you know, get us out of here. Or uh, when he, or the, the dialogue between Bond and Madeline, when he first meets her at Norway and, mm-hmm. and the way he, you know, says like, you know, I'm not going to leave you without you knowing that I've always loved you. And my biggest regret is leaving you on the train station. And then it switches to comedy. Excuse me. I'm just Go on, Jason. <laughs> and then switches to comedy and then switches back to drama. And then that all had to be timed very precisely. And that's, and I thought that was very interesting because the people have been both, I mean, all three directors and just critics and audiences alike have been just, hailing this as like the most emotional Bond movie, not just because Bond dies at the end, but because of how every scene was just so timed so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, um, I agree with you that it's quite interesting. I wouldn't have thought of, I'm not a filmmaker, spoilers, but you know, that's certainly from, from what little I know about the filmmaking process, that's not something that would have ever crossed my mind, the idea of, of uh, chronometry, uh, timing time in a scene because you know you go back to the moment in Matera where the 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 Aston Martin gets smashed by the Range Rover and it's a very particular moment there there, there's a very specific set of ideas that you need to get across but nobody's really talking except for Madeline you know James say something Uh, other than that no one's really talking so in a very specific amount of time you need to communicate a very specific set of ideas if you if you're if you don't spend enough time in that car, you haven't communicated the ideas. If you spend too much time in the car, you know. But if you spend too much time before Bond says, "Fine, okay, I'm taking the big guns out," literally, um, then maybe you get the messages lost. And then the last, and then this is not from this interview, but another example that Tom Cross and Elliot Graham mention is is for Bond's ultimate demise is like after Sappen hits him with the vial and says we're the makers of our own tragedy is what he says or something along that lines and and uh, when bond realizes that he's been poisoned with uh or he's infected with madeline and matilde's dna uh he doesn't just kill sapin right away because like a lot of bond fans and myself included i i wanted like you know a sapin death to be like something like very agreed you know very egregiously explicit but, you know, like initially I was like, man, he just shoots him in cold blood. That's it. I was like, I wanted something more epic death for Saffron. But the, watching that scene like multiple times, I was like, wow, this is actually really brilliant. Because like during that time, he's Daniel's facial motions is like thinking about what just all happened. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking about 
So, so killing Saffin's like the third thing in his, on his mind. And he's thinking, he's first thinking about like, what is he, you know, the safety of Madeline and Matilda, because mm-hmm. that's what's going through his mind. And then, so that's why he shoots him, not shoots Saffin cold-bloodedly, like in point blank. It's an without looking at him. It's an afterthought because yeah. he's already he he at that moment as he's realizing that he's he's sort of drawn the conclusion that well I've I've lost even if I killed yeah. this asshole I've lost so it doesn't really matter I'm just gonna shoot this guy in the face now mm-hmm. so that was, and then as we transition into from that to like I guess like Bond's demise to finally Madeline acknowledging that Matilde is Bond's daughter at the end and he mm-hmm. ends with. I know, just like Han Solo did in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, that's why they wrote him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's right. That's a callback to the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, that's a really nice, I, I like how that scene is, is, is cut. I like how that scene is, is shot. It's, um, is it the... Um, Final sense? I was watching, they released yet another one this week. It's not with a director. It's more of a featurette. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it's actually on the Academy uh, YouTube channel. It's on, on the 007 YouTube channel. Academy. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, that was a good one. And I think they mention uh, the technical people like Chris Corbold and, and his gang. The, the technical people mentioned that this idea of, um, and they include on it, the climax takes place sort of like mid to late afternoon and into the sunset. And it's... Mm-hmm. The sun is setting on on our James Bond. Oh yeah, quite yeah exactly. You know, I never even clued in on that. To anything else about the Villeneuve uh, interview? Uh, I want to like you know finish you know go back to the ch- you know talking about Mathilde, played by Lisa Dora and Fukunaga said uh, he wanted to cast some. He said Daniel was active in the casting process of Mathilde, and Leia Sadu you know worked with her younger act- actress who plays her younger self, but uh, he said. He wanted actress, two kids who could express pathos. And I thought both actresses did it very well. And uh, after this movie, uh, I mean, after watching this interview, I did watch the movie Ponette, a French film from 1996 that Fukunaga and Villeneuve mentioned. It's about the, it's about the movie where a young girl loses her mother, like a girl who's like six years old, played by Victoire Divisot who loses her mother when she's like six years old in a car accident and just the way she deals with grief. And that's how uh, I think both Madeline and Mathilde, you know, they're both, you know, they're both uh, children. I mean, all three, you know, young Madeline, Mathilde and Victoire Tivis or Ponette, the Ponette character in Ponette, uh, all three characters are children who have lost parents at a very young age and how they deal with the grief and move on with their lives. And on a tit- little tidbit, I thought Lisa Dora, who plays Mathilde, really resembles Victoire Divisor in Ponette. I was like, oh my gosh. And they're, just, we're both wearing this, they're both wearing the same overalls and everything. I'm not sure if that was a, <laughs> if that was a reference. Uh, so, yeah. It's, it's Fukunaga's favorite movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then she, the actress, she was in... Uh, I, so I saw Ponette recently, but like I was like, where did it, where did I see her from? And she was in Chocolate with Johnny Depp in the late '90s, and then she hasn't done. And she was a child actress, very talented, but she's never done anything since. And I wanted to end this with like saying, like, a lot of time I know, like some people weren't 
thrilled about having ch- children in a Bond movie, but I think Fukunaga ha- used that element the best the way it could, because a lot of times action films are ruined because children distract the plot or distract the audience away from the plot. Mm-hmm. Like Jack Reacher, I like the first Jack Reacher, but my parents and I said the second Jack Reacher sucks because like mm. that's that daughter or that young girl who may or may not be Tom Cruise's daughter, like just really detracts away from everything, mm-hmm. just kind of like creates like unnecessary tension. And yeah. obviously Star Star Wars episode one with Jake Lloyd as young Anakin Skywalker, like that was the reason. That's one of the many reasons people, you know, hate mm-hmm. that movie unfairly. And then World of the Worlds to a certain extent, I mean, I understand why it's there, but but Dakota Fanning, I mean, granted, it's very realistic, but every time Dakota Fanning is just young, Dakota Fanning, that is, mm-hmm. is screaming her lungs at a Tom Cruise. I'm just like, I mean, granted, it reminded me of my sister. Stop at the time, it. Like, Stop it. I was like, no. And then my, my, my dad and I always joke like that was to my sister. That was just like you when you were that age, because she and Dakota Fanning are the same age. And I just remember just being like, oh, I was like, mm. it was like, where will this end? I mean, granted, that's how it is in real life but like you know it also distracts you from the movie i need to and, uh, revisit that it's been a while i haven't seen war of the worlds and, and i've never seen uh, ponette or or chocolat for that matter uh, two more things i want to end with uh Villeneuve was uh the last conversation they had was the challenge of bond making a bond movie for a new director is how do you respect tradition while adding freshness to the series and they go into talking about creating the Saffin Lair, as well as the laboratory raid. And now we know what blew up the 007 stage during No Time Die yes. was the, <laughs> was the, lab, the lab, you know, when the lab explodes. Mm. And then... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is a really awesome moment in that interview where Fukunaga, he's, uh, he, he really felt, well, I mean, he, I'm sure he's not the only one who felt it. Anybody who was in that room or close to that room felt it. But the, the idea of the oxygen and, that's uh, that's that's scary, man. You're making a movie and you almost die. That's uh, quite something. I mean, three mo- three bomb movies have blown up the 007 stage. So, A View to Kill was the first one, the Zorn mine scene. Mm. Second was Casino Royale when they're filming the Venice collapse, the interiors of the Venice collapse scene, and mm-hmm. now third is uh, No Time Die, the lap scene. I thought it would have been in like the Saffin Lair scene, but you know. The one that uh, didn't the the explosion. Oh no, the explosions of uh, Daniel Craig that was done outside on the fields of uh, wherever the hell. Salisbury. Uh, Salisbury, yeah. And then, I mean, so that's what really intrigued me about that interview because, like, I love, because, you know, I had a very, I love Chris Corbold and I was more thrilled when I met Chris Corbold than anybody else at the red carpet that premiered because, like, him and I, I mean, granted, Watching Peter Booker and David Zaritsky's Corbold interviews, I'm like, I mean, since all three of us are very different personalities, or at least I'm much more different than those two specifically, uh, the conversations I have with Corbold were much different than the the Zaritsky's videos because well, like, I'm more tech. Pete, Peter Booker wants to know what is James Bond wearing as the explosion happens. The Zaritsky wants to know how do you market the scene when the explosion happens. You want to know how did you make the explosion happen, yeah. <laughs> or that and like I, I would like nitty gritty. Like we talked about an episode, like I would really nitty gritty on the suspensions of the Range Rover versus the Land mm. Cruiser and whatnot. Mm. But mm. but they filmed that like before cameras even roll because they said they filmed in April 2019. And then uh, and then uh, because like like I said uh. 
I really wanted Villeneuve to be the Bond director, but we got Fukunaga. And watching Blade Runner 2049 in 2017, like I, I said to myself, like the, act, the Dutch actress who plays the replicant, Sylvia Hooks, mm-hmm. like I was like, I said to myself, I was like, that girl's going to be a Bond girl one day. I thought it was like, I was like, she's like, just like Famke Janssen at the time. I was like, she's going to be the next Xenia. She's, I was like, cast her Eon, please. And then, and I think it, the opportunity could come one day because like, she's still a working actress. I mean, hasn't been in much, but I was like, I was really impressed with her performance in Blade Runner. But instead, we didn't get her. We, somebody else, we got someone else from that movie who was <laughs> played. We got our very well. Paloma, played by Ana de Armas, who was Joy in the the AI Brian Gosling's AI system, mm-hmm. and she's quite good in that. She's she's quite. It's not it's not the biggest role. She's very much a supporting character, but when when, when she's on screen, it's she's she's quite good in that. I think that was the first thing I saw her in. I don't think I knew oh, yeah. who that was. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that was that, I remember during the casting in May 2019. I was like, oh, that's Joy from Blade Runner. I didn't say like mm. something something. I was like, that was. You know, because I love Blade Runner. I was like, oh, that. I was like, yes. Good. That was a huge shocker for me. I was like, he was like, I thought it was going to be Sylvia Hawks because like, I was like, please cast her. Then we got her. Mm-hmm. I remember that that uh, Jamaica live stream casting announcement. There were some surprises in there. I, I, like, much like you, I, I had no idea that Anna the Armas uh, was in the running. I, did, I didn't know we were going to get Felix back. When they said Jeffrey yeah. Red, I was like, oh, wow, God, Felix is back. Uh, so yeah, that was a fun. It was a fun morning. I remember the the little juices. Oh yeah, uh, I didn't know um, uh, Lashana Lynch. Didn't know because I I had seen Captain Marvel. Yeah. I liked her in Captain Marvel, and when that showed up, I was like, oh really? The 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 sidekick from Captain Marvel. Shall we move on to uh, Senor Guillermo del Toro? Yes, sir. And uh, this Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I mean, his movies are a lot more fantastic than the other two directors per se, I guess. Mm-hmm. More except or less, his last uh, one, except his last one, which is oh, steeped I, in a little bit more seriousness. <laughs> but, uh, oh, Nightmare's Alley. Uh, it's a discussion for another time, but that was not what I expected at all. Like I was expecting like a, like a true like crime film noir. I mean, it is kind of, but, but not, but it was not what I expected at all. And he has a new movie coming out Pinocchio on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a. I think it's like stop stop motion. Make stop motion. I think so. Pinocchio. So yeah. It's not for another few months. I think isn't that late twenty twenty two? I know yeah, they like just December. released a teaser, but it's. Like, yeah. I think they're still working on it. I mean, my favorite. I still remember in two thousand. I guess uh, <laughs> to tie all these directors back, or two of the directors back, is a uh, two thousand six is uh, when. Pan's Labyrinth came out and I thought at the time that was like one of the best movies I saw I mean I think that still is my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie and I was taking a cinema class at school at the time and the way my professor described it was uh, Pan's Labyrinth is Schindler's Schindler's List meets Alice in Wonderland but it yeah but it yeah but it uh what is it the dictatorship fascism spain obviously mm-hmm. fascism espana mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no there there is quite a bit of that in there he he's um he uh, he del toro uh, has has made a couple of movies like that he made one a few just a few years earlier um 
earlier Hellboy. than Pants and uh, no, Hellboy. I, I, I wasn't going to bring that. Yes, I understand there are like neo-Nazis in there, but um, no, what the heck is it called? Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone. I've never That's, seen that. Okay. That takes place during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and it's a ghost story. So he does have this fascination. You know, Hellboy's a different genre, but still, it's fantastical. They're supernatural beings in in Hellboy, and they're Nazis in Hell. Are there? Yeah, they're they're at the start, I think, at Hellboy. Yeah. I think for the rest of the way, it's Russians. But uh, he does have this fascination of of melding. Uh, the real world true evil with like fantastical uh e- evil uh he, he's done it a few times in his in his career del toro and and the james bond movies there's nothing supernatural in a J- in james well living and dying i stand corrected yeah. R- there's rarely anything supernatural in in james bond movies but they sort of do the same thing in the sense that you know it's you're often inspired by the real world you know what's the threat now or what's the threat in five minutes from now uh and and, and they build from that so I, I guess from a thematic standpoint you know fukunaga and and del toro are kind of doing the same thing uh who's it, it's uh this interview has fukunaga uh barbara and, and Rami So I guess uh, so. This interview was a lot was focused on more the emotional side of No Time Die, as well as uh, what is it, the character of Safin, mm-hmm. and because like Safin, because Rami Malek's a type of actor who uh, he's not like a he's a type of actor who makes the audience like focus on him or like <laughs> you know draws his audience and like he exudes his energy in the way he you know, the way he moves, like, in Bohemian Rhapsody, like, the way he, like, mimicked Freddie Mercury so, so well, like, you know, mm. like, the stage at Wembley or, like, just his movements. Yeah. And that's what, you know, like, me, like many other people, like, when I first saw No Time Die or my fourth time seeing No Time Die, I said, <laughs> uh, and my friend, or my friend who's who I saw No Time Die with the, on my fourth time, uh, he loved, no time die more than Joe Darlington did, if that says anything. And he said the biggest, he said the biggest weakest link of no time die was definitely the character of Safin because like Safin mm-hmm. never had any motive. He said, and I'm quoting my friend, not myself. He said, if it was Blofeld who just wanted to destroy the world for the sake of destroying the world, he would have accepted that because you know Blofeld is, has already been established as this evil character, whereas like Safin just kind of appears and is just mm-hmm. doing it just for the sake of it mm-hmm. and watching this inner and i agree with him my friend paul but uh watching this interview like i'm glad i did. it makes me really appreciate rami malek's portrayal better because i was like wow this was a this was a very layered character and so what two things that rami says was like safin is a very confident composed character and he never you never see him raise his voice or he's never allowed. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's already very empowered. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for the word to describe Safin. Del Toro said it the best. Safin is very, ex- he's a very exis- existential character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he is. He, he is. Th- this was, um, 
maybe I liked this interview the most, if, if only because uh, not that the first two weren't, weren't good. I thought they were both pretty good, but maybe the reason why I like this one the most is because we got so much into the mind of Remy Malik, his preparation, what went into the character of Safin, Safin, um, depending on who you're speaking to. Um, I, 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 uh, picked up on on Malik explaining, you know, since Safin has been on the prowl, on the hunt for the white the white family uh, for so long, <laughs> and, and he says uh, Madeleine all those years ago. Well, you know, every not a day goes by without him thinking. Well, if I see her again, what's that going to be like? In what context will I see her again for the first time? He's sort of, not Remy Malik, the character of Safin is, is surely playing that in his mind with each and every passing day as the years go by. And, and it did put an interesting spin on the character. Yeah, I'm a very, very firm believer. I'm a staunch believer in taking the movie you got don't don't talk to me about the prequel comic book don't talk to me about the sequel offshoot novel what's the movie i still believe that what we have on screen during those two hours and 43 minutes is okay but nothing amazing but it's i still felt it was enriching hearing this conversation and specifically hearing rami malik sort of elaborate on on i guess what as the guy playing safin mm-hmm. um you know, there's more meat on the bones right now. I, mm-hmm. I wish I had felt it more watching the movie, mm-hmm. but yes, I, I, I did like hearing that. And I, and I think we needed to hear that because what's one of the major complaints about No Time to Die? Oh, great movie, but the villain sucks. It's like, well, yes, <laughs> but, um, but, but it was nice hearing Rami Malek share his thought process a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way Rami <coughs> described Safin was he's a coiled spring with a lot of layers. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and he's, he has nothing to lose, so making him very existential. Yeah, and a tragic Just, character. A tragic character. Uh, oh, yes. And uh, both Madeline and Safin are, or it's like a specter as a whole, are all from criminal families, more or mm. less. Mm, yeah yeah that's 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 true uh yeah i mean madeline has had a bit of a well hope, hopefully now that she's rode off into the sunset with Mathilde, life will be a little bit uh will be a little bit uh, kinder uh, to them because what uh, mr white's gone specter's gone blofeld's gone saffin's gone i mean there's no there's nobody, uh, there's nobody left <laughs> bond is gone because bond has brought her danger every time Bond has brought her danger every time. You know, it's the it's a it's a it's a clean slate for for Madeline and and Madeline, which I, I guess is a nice way to end that movie. But there is there is something nice about that uh, about that ending in that sense. And in fact, Del Toro is seems uh, in this interview seems keenly interested on the idea of the legacy and shaping the legacy of the franchise. I believe that's a question he asks Barbara near the start of the interview and. It's funny that No Time to Die ends with Madeleine saying, you know, Mathilde, I'm going to tell you a story of a name of a man named Bond, James Bond. It's sort of that legacy will live on, um, mm. well, at least between the two of them. It, 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 yeah. It, you know, um, 
Anything else that you picked up on uh, in the Del Toro interview? Uh, two more, a few more things. Is uh, I, uh, granted, I'm a Spectre, I'm a Spectre lover, a Spectre lover and defender, and uh, I loved what CJF's Fukunaga said, like when he was having conversations with Rami, like you know, developing the character. He was like, "What if we go back to Spectre and said, uh, you know, when Mister White is you know poisoned with thallium, and he said, what if it wasn't." actually Spectre or Blofeld has poisoned them through a phone, but it was Safin who's poisoned them, you know, paying back revenge, using the poison from this poison garden. And when Bond meets Madeline for the first time in Seoul, then uh, Safin's probably in the background somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes, I remember that. It's That's one of those funny things. Uh, when you look back at how those the last two films are constructed and you take into consideration who the character of Safin is and what his raison d'être is, in no time to die, it does make Mr. White's death a little bit, uh, a little bit strange, does it? I mean, when they made Spectre, they weren't thinking about what Bond twenty what was going to happen yeah. in Bond twenty six. But looking in hindsight, Mr. White's death is a little bit odd. Where it's like, well, it it would make more sense if Safin had got him, but Safin Safin was but a twinkle in the writer's uh, mind's eye when they were making Spectre, and uh, they. Fukunaga also says, uh, Bond, or as Barbara, Barbara and Fukunaga say, Bond and Safin are both men without shadows, and Bond gets his shadow back, you know, during his demise. Yeah, I'm not sure what that was about, though. I, I remember him saying that, but I'm, I'm still not clear what that's supposed to mean, the men without shadows. Is, is that an expression I'm just not familiar with? Or? It's like, I think, because, like, you know, like, you know, Safin says, I could be looking at my own reflection. I could be speaking to my own reflection. That's the way I interpret it as kind of like tying all, all back there. I guess so. I don't know. Or the, I don't know. And, and don't, I really, I thought this was really fascinating. And this kind of speaks to the Bond community as a whole is every time we, as Bond fans, watch Bond movies, we're consumers. We, we go and it's like, what is Bond going to get? What is Bond? What's going to Bond's going to wear? You know, like, you know, the Zeritskis, the Peter Bookers, you know, or even Emery, because Emery is more marketable, marketing minded, much more than I am. It's like most Bond fans go in like into a Bond film, like focusing on what does Bond get, whether it's a gadget, clothes, et cetera. But No Time to Die is the movie about what does Bond lose? <laughs> Ooh, how profound. It is. I mean, it is. Uh, other than his 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 life, it's not just the matter of him losing his life. Although that's like the big punchline, it's the fact that he loses what could have been. You know, he, yeah, his James exactly. Bond quits in Casino Royale. His James Bond uh, quits at the Stop. end of Spectre. Quit, uh, quits at Skyfall too. Technically, quits, yeah, well, yeah. He's enjoying death. It's a little. It's a little yeah. bit of a gray zone. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's a little in between. Uh, sort of quant, quantum. He kind of goes rogue. So he goes rogue. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's fitting. You know, um, they 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 keep they keep saying James Bond can never have. Or Barbara keeps saying James Bond. He can never have. You know, the true love. But I I feel like he keeps looking for it. Daniel Craig's Bond yep. keeps yep. looking for it. And now that he he had it for but a moment, and it's it slipped through his fingers due to that uh, that uh, that jerk uh, Safin spoiled mm-hmm. those plans. Uh, but yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I think it's it's deeper than 
oh yeah, Bond lost his life. I think that's the obvious point. It's the, the, yeah. the, the more interesting point is he lost what could have been. Yeah. And and what he felt for it, I don't know what the a time span seconds. is in this movie is a day, a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he I mean Bond himself says that in his life in the movie, he says at the Norway house, he's like, What what felt like five minutes of my life, I wanted everything of that with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. And a lot good acting. I mean, because you know, all my I know like Bond fan within the Bond community, this movie's divided, but uh amongst my social circle, you know, casual viewers, just feel cinema fans in general, like they all praise the hell out of no time, including my family and the scene between Bond and Matt when Bond returns to Madeline, like that's the one scene that everyone's been praising. And, mm. and just to, I know I'm not trying to be a troll, but all my non-Bond fans. Don't you dare, the, Jason. Uh, Don't you dare. All my non-Bond fans love the Honor Majesty's cues because they never watched Honor Majesty. So they're like, oh, it's beautiful music. They're, they don't know mm. that it's from a previous Bond film, but you know. Yeah, I, I still haven't quite made my peace with uh, the the only one I've sort of made my peace with is the uh, the um, not the the Armstrong uh, cue at the end, but when Bond and M are along the River Thames and you can subtly hear the Majesty's theme. It's because he's coming back to his magic her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm like, fine. I still would have liked different music, but okay, I'll give that one to you. Um, I mean, uh, I was just I was rewatching the Daniel Craig films and the scene at the beach in Casino Royale when he says, I'm going to, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with, you know, enough to quit the Secret Service hmm. that watch that line and watch the barn scene in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Like the words that were used were almost verbatim. And I was like, hmm. so I'm the type, I mean, whether you agree with the use of honor majesties or not i'm the type of person who says uh if you're gonna do something go go all the way don't half ass do it so they've already they've been doing they've been making honor majesties cues since casino royale and they did in skyfall when he's uh, cradling judy dench's death mm. just like he did tracy and then specter you know play with it the specter trailer definitely yeah remix yeah. the music so, so i was like you know what just go all the way just you've already you've already right. got this far as like don't don't i mean it's like climbing or it's like going rock climbing just don't don't climb to the half go go all the way to the top like you're already here, spe- so. specter there's a love that you know we don't need to get into the quality of the love story but inspector yeah. there's a love story between bond and the daughter of a villain you know which yeah, is also exactly. like Man, yeah, it's true. Now that you point, although it was pretty in our faces in Inspector, yeah. but now that you bring up those other examples, that it, it does make one ponder. Like how how long have they how long have they been obsessed with bringing back Honor Majesty's Secret Service into this franchise? Uh, I mean, it it's the next. Feel. I mean, it's the next actor for Bob Twenty Six. Is he gonna build off of Spy Love Me? cues and then end his tenure with nobody does it better than i i hopeful hopefully not it'll be it'll be interesting to see i guess that's sort of the the exciting part about being a bond fan in this early 2022 which is you know the the i understand that it's the 60th anniversary of the franchise and i'm sure there are many goodies coming our way over the next uh, over the coming nine to ten months however much is left in this year but or 10 11 months yeah. but um 
but the fact of the matter is at some point, you know, we, as if I'm going to be in those rooms, <laughs> we have to sit down and like, oh, what's the next one going to be like? And the slate is so clean. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that's what made it. That's so amongst my non-Bond fans, uh, they all love that Daniel Craig's Bond died. Cause like the two things they always say, the two facts that my friends bring up are factors. My friends bring up are one Daniel Craig's, like we just mentioned, Daniel Craig's Bond leaves his job at every in in each of his four past four films, or or I guess start of Spectre, I mean start of No Time to Die Five, if you include that. So like, so this guy really hates his job, and mm. he has a very toxic work relation with his job. And why does he quit and just keep going back? And and if he retired at No Time to Die, that would have just done nothing with the character arc. And I said this in our first No Time to Die review, and the fact that he dies, you know, kind of closes that arc. And Guillermo del Toro says, like, he loved that these five films, whether it was intentional or not, like, or at least this movie specifically, going into it, it was his last, like, he said it was a beautiful arc, which we've never seen in a Bond movie. And it provides a clean slate so that when they make Bond 26, they can do whatever they want. Like, they don't, I mean, sure, you could always bring Felix's and if you want to bring back Ray Fiennes as M, just like Judy Dench, that's mm-hmm. fine too. But, but it's a clean slate and audiences mm-hmm. will go in with that clean slate like you know yeah he does bring up del toro that is he does bring up the idea of the arc and the idea of the tragedy of the arc where he you know he loses a lover in casino royale and then he loses a whole lot more uh in no time in no time to die it's, i think he uses the word melancholic yeah, i don't want to misquote it's, it's melancholic yeah, he, he said he said daniel's journey was wistful and melancholic mel- Wistful and melancholic, and and humanize the character of James Bond, yeah, which is not something we we saw very often, with the exception of Majesties, with the mm-hmm. exception of I wouldn't call License to Kill wistful, but it was no. a different. It did play a different game, um, but, but by and large, it's not something we've seen in our previous Bonds. It, it does, if anything, um, you know. I guess one of my major takeaways from the Daniel Craig era in addition to being, you know, great movies, but is that you, you, you really can stretch this thematically from a thematic standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, you really can stretch this idea of what, what a James Bond movie is quite wide. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's much more m- malleable than maybe what was originally thought, uh, you know, through the Conneries and the Roger, certainly through the Roger Moores. And, mm-hmm. and to an extent, the Brosnans, although the Brosnans sort of dipped their toes, you mm-hmm. know, oh, world is not enough. The, the, the Bond girl is actually the villain. And, you know, he's sort of betrayed there. And 006 was a friend. You know, it's, it's dipping mm-hmm. its toes yeah. in those waters. But, but the, the Craig era really uh, goes all out. On, yeah. on making Bond and his world a little bit more wistful and melancholic. Do do I, now that the Craig era is done, not only do I like the idea of Edgar Wright d- directing uh, the next one or, or any one of them in the future, uh, I, I very much appreciate his chocolate analogy. Do you know the chocolate analogy? Oh, uh, yes, I do. Yeah, dark chocolate and milk chocolate. You know, Connery, dark chocolate. Roger Moore, milk chocolate, Timothy Dalton, Dark chocolate. Dark, definitely dark chocolate. Yeah, very dark chocolate. Ninety percent pure cocoa. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, milk chocolate. Daniel Craig, dark chocolate. 
what's the next one? We need some milk chocolate. Give me some milk mm-hmm. chocolate. So <laughs> I'm, I'm down for some milk chocolate. Um, so I don't know if we're going to get uh, wistful and melancholic in 26. We, we had it for five movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we can do, I think we're good to do something else now. Um, we'll see what it is. We'll see what it is. Anything else about the to- Del Toro? And then uh, I did uh, one, few, I guess, uh, to sum it up, Del Toro calls Kerry Fukunaga a very intelligent, a very enviable, intelligent talents and a true virtuoso. And when I met Aaron, the actress, Erin Moriarty, Aaron Moriarty, who plays Starlight in Amazon Prime's The Boy Show at Comic-Con. So this was in mid-October, like not only like two weeks after I came back from the premiere. And, I, and mind you, Aaron Mor- Moriarty got her big break in playing Woody Harrelson's daughter in Fukunaga's first season of True Detective. Like she plays like a very like rebellious teenager. And I and the first, you know, Aaron Moriarty is a very nice actress. And I asked her, like, what was it like working with Kerry Fukunaga? Because, like, you know, he was still early in his mm-hmm. directing chops at the, in 2014 at the time. And she was like, oh, my gosh, Kerry Fukunaga is the sweetest and the smartest director I've ever worked with. I will work with him any day again. And I showed him the picture I had of Fukunaga at the premiere. She's like, oh, my gosh, that's him. And she was like, I'm so excited to see uh, the new James Bond movie because it was only released like a week after that. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the, the I guess, the after factor, like how everyone who works under Kerry Fukunaga describes him as like, he really is a virtuoso and, and he is very open-minded and he, know, he knows what he wants, but he's also willing to, you know, take in other ideas. I mean, I don't know what happened at, when they were making it part one, but, mm-hmm. you know. You know what? Um, the more I think of it, um, I think of Fukunaga, um, less so the, the, the man, I've, I've never met him, but the, the, the filmmaker, uh, the, the more he's sort of reminded me of, of a Steven Soderbergh, where like he can sort of just do anything. You know, if he wants to make a movie about child soldiers in Africa, done. You know, if he wants to make a, a new interpretation of Jane Eyre, done if he wants to make a spanish language film about two kids fleeing central america on the way to the states done you want to make a 300 million dollar james bond movie done like sort of do anything tv done you know Um, i mean he's come a long way from uh being uh destiny's child's cameraman for their music videos to really making yeah that's how he started out his career so being a cameraman on destiny when the destiny's childs were together Nice to to making one of the most successful James Bond movies ever. So that's a pretty uh, traje- that's quite a trajectory in his career. And he's now working on, or he's finishing up a show for Apple TV Plus called Masters of Air. So it's like a Band of Brothers like miniseries about the dogfights in World War II. And to wrap this up, I mean, I think after we after I watched No Time Die with my dad. Uh, the immediate thing he asked, he said was, this movie was clearly made by an Asian man. Because <laughs> like he said, the visuals were really? very, because like, you know, like when you watch like Pak Chan, you know, old boy or like, 
or like sympathy or lady vengeance or even parasite like the visuals like are very not not saying that bond movies are never stunning but like the visuals have like certain color palette and he was like on the asian most asians kind of like think like that and i know like some people people when within the bond community were disappointed that the 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 poison garden or poison island or garden of poison garden wasn't like the garden of death and you only live twice but my dad said the way they portray the garden with the rocks and and how the mm-hmm. and how the farmers are raking the rocks mm-hmm. for a pattern every day uh that's a very japanese culture mm-hmm. and i think it was very important that they got that right i know like you know some bomb fans may be disappointed like it didn't go into too fantasy but it represented like the culture J- japanese culture very accurately and fukunaga goes in one of the interviews saying like he was inspired by art island in japan when he was in japan and you know mm-hmm. and that first happens island and that's why i think so instead of like you know say a movie like a die another day that just completely misappropriated another culture like it's important mm-hmm. to have someone who's familiar with the culture and get it right and even though i mean so like i like the poison garden because you know it represented like accurate accurate japanese culture yeah yeah no i i noticed the little raking of the uh the, the, the pebble garden or the rock garden or what it's a sort of little stone yeah. garden yeah. That, that's quite uh, traditional i look james bond movies it, it's this isn't we're not in 1962 anymore where james bond is you know at les cercles ambassadeurs in london uh, in his smoking jacket and uh then shows off to uh, putters off to the little uh, backwards uh, Jamaican island where like we're afraid of dragons. Like we're not in 1962 anymore. You know, it's 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 a global brand. I guess the idea is Bond does have to. You can't really make a James Bond movie where he's not very British. He has to be British. Um, but at the same time, it's such a global brand, and travel is so prominent. <laughs> Maybe more more yeah. today than ever before. <laughs> Maybe not in the last couple of years, but usually traveling is is a lot more prominent. You, you the whole notion of you know appropriating cultures and this and that. It's like yeah, but if you kind of, I don't think it's appropriating cultures. It's it's James Bond's going all over the place. Like you, you have to show some of this stuff. It, and it's also it's it, this is a this base doesn't exist. There's no mm-hmm. there's no poison island being disputed between the Russians. <laughs> The Japanese. Oh no, there actually is. There actually is the it's not islands, island. yes, but not a poison yeah. island. And on the topic of fantasy, I think it's it's absolutely fantasy because I have no idea what the heck is going on between that garden on the surface level, that toxic water in the bunker, yeah. and the laboratory. I have no idea what the heck is going on. So it's fantasy to me. Well, how does what's what's the chain reaction there? The hell have I know? But, uh, would you would you hire Fukunaga for a future Bond movie? It doesn't have to be Bond twenty six. I would, I would. I think he's young, he's exciting. Uh, he he has a good eye. Uh, we, I think he has a very good eye, and I think he understands action. He would be supported by the best of the best. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I'm, I'm my first vote is still Edgar Wright, but but uh, I I agree with that. I'd have no issue if Fukunaga was was high. He's he has he not said you know he might have an idea about what to do. I don't want to put words yeah. into his mouth, but I mean he has. I mean it's gonna be a clean. It'll be it'll be very exciting for him because like it'll be a clean slate and he'll be like the first since. I mean he'll be like a John Glenn or, or uh, what is it, 
Guy Hamilton who directed an actor's final and an actor's debut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Uh, would you Would you like to have Fukunaga back if the opportunity? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he's a very fresh mind and he's close to our age, so like he understands our generation very well. <laughs> right. Right. You were saying. Uh... Not on this episode, but behind the scenes, you know, yeah, he's like the Netflix director. He's like the Netflix generation and all that, the streaming generation. Um, yeah, so you know, keep it fresh, keep it, uh, keep keep it fresh, keep it new, and keep it updated. And I think uh, I would, I would hope. I like the idea. I say this having enjoyed the Sam Mendes films quite a bit, but 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 I like the idea of maybe. Um, for the next, for the foreseeable future, give the reins to people who have maybe you know, made a film or two, earn their spurs a little bit, uh, but not somebody who's you know, 50, 60, 70 years old. Oh, no. Give it to somebody in their late 30s, early 40s, mid 30s, if, if the case, whatever the case may be, mid 40s, you know, someone who has sort of, gr- someone who's grown up and was shaped by like the previous bond so it's like still kind of recent you know yeah uh i I kind of like that idea whether they'll do that or not i have no freaking clue but uh, i mean i think there's not a depth of talent today in today's showbiz industry and uh i mean don't get me wrong i love danny boyle and i was excited at the prospect of danny boyle directing a bond movie but in the end i said i'm glad it didn't work out because sam mendes and danny boyle on a surface level, I mean, without going too nitty gritty on their theatrical and film work, on the surface level, they're pretty much the same, like middle age, older middle aged British men, you mm. know, with, you know, like, so they have almost like their life experiences are very similar. So I don't, I don't think no t- if Danny Boyle had directed, it would have been that much different than a Sam Mendes film, whereas like No Time Dies very different than Skyfall Spectre because Thanks, someone. Danny. Danny Bo has a lot of range, though. Twenty-eight days later, uh, the 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 non-Beatles movie. You know, he's he does tw- one hundred twenty-seven hours. Steve Friends Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve, Steve Jobs. I, I think he has. I, for all the respect in the world I have for Sam Mendes, I, I like his movies a lot. I, I really liked nineteen seventeen. I liked Road to Perdition. I liked uh, Revolution Road. Revolutionary Road. Revolution. Yeah, Revolutionary Road. Um, I think he's a great filmmaker, but if you, oh, you know, who, who, who's, whose next film is going to be something I never would have guessed, Sam Mendes or Danny Boyle? It's Danny Boyle because he's oh, always sure. doing something. Complete. So I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, I would, st- if, if they, I don't think it's going to happen because yeah. I, I think I have a feeling they left on terms where it's like, you know what, respect, respect, yeah. but I don't think we should work together. So I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. But if they ever kissed and made up, um, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind giving that another crack with Danny Boyle. I'll, I'll agree with that last portion. I mean, my 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 always hunch was a uh, Eon should have hired Danny Boyle in his prime in the mid nineties because like mm. he was coming up hot off the heels of trains hot off the heels of train spotting and imagine what he could have done with Robert Carlyle because Robert mm-hmm. Carlyle is his boy. Mm-hmm. So. Very true. Yeah. A Danny Boyle directed world is not enough might've been quite, an, I have nothing but love for the world. It's not enough as it is, but yeah, the, 
my brain is like sort of fantasizing about the Danny Boyle directed world is not enough. I, I mean, know. Renard would have been Renard would have been just batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you you want me to hold one hot rock in my hand? I'll throw them back at you. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll eat them. I'll chew them. Uh, while, you know, while while smoking heroin, <laughs> while smoking heroin, yeah, injecting who God knows what, injecting oil into his veins. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, any any concluding thoughts about whether Del Toro, who I feel we haven't spoken about in forty five minutes, <laughs> or any of these directors? Uh, no, not not much. Maybe I, I think I got I think Seth and poison you know sent me some thallium on my phone. Through my phone, but let yeah, me check my phone. If, yeah, let, yeah, I'm not sure if it's COVID or thallium, but <laughs> let me check my phone if it has thallium. Wait a <laughs> second, I'm getting a, I'm getting a text message or a thallium uh, text message, or it's an encrypted message. Oh. It's with, oh. and it says it says it's from Monsieur Blanc. Oh, Monsieur Blanc, jeez. Monsieur geez. Blanc says, Jason, do you have people? Everywhere, everywhere, we do, Monsieur Blanc. Blanc, emphasis on the C. Obviously, wouldn't you agree? Uh, we we have www.thejamesbondcomplex.com, uh, which Matthew keeps insisting is a Tumblr account. I have yet to be. I have yet to see definitive proof of that. Uh, we're hosted at Anchor.fm. Uh, we're on YouTube a little bit more these days, courtesy of, of uh, Emery's efforts. So search for the James Bond Complex, subscribe and tickle us with the thumbs up button on YouTube. Uh, we are on Facebook, search for the James Bond Complex. We're on Instagram at the James Bond Complex, where, where you, Jason, are publishing quite a few things these days. Um, Twitter at the Bond Complex. And uh, if you want to download us, listen to us, there's Spotify, there's Google Podcasts, and uh, the greatest uh, podcast platform that ever has been, is, ever has been, and never will be, Apple Podcasts. Uh, search for the James Bond Complex, subscribe, write a review, and leave us a five-star glowing golden gun review. But that is not all. You are on the interwebs as well, Jason, individually, as a, as, a, as a unique entity. So you guys can also find me, find my personal account at JAS at Instagram, that is JASXON88, where you can find for the 60th anniversary of James Bond in 2022, you'll find, you'll be seeing some pictures that are from Fleming to film and everything in between. Ooh. Mm. Sexy. Oh, that is if that isn't a tease for an entire year, I don't know what is. Uh, so on that note, just as James Bond always returns, uh, we're sort of back in our nebulous timeline right now. God knows when Bond Twenty Six is released, mm -hmm. but just as James Bond always returns, so too with the James Bond Complex. With I don't have the schedule in front of me. Something next week. Uh, sur ce, toujours un plaisir et à la prochaine. Bongjuno Gamdongnim, Trojoso Kamsamnida, and Yangesel, Arigato Batane. There's a moment, by the way, that I love when, when she leaves on the train, oh. and she touches her stomach. Yeah. And, and I went, <gasps> she has a baby. <laughs> you knew it. You knew it. Well, I, I, I'm Mexican. I like my little drama. So I was like, <laughs> what is going to happen now?